Hello, I'm Bill Kennedy, teacher with Carl Voigt of Quantity of Class. Welcome to a 13 lesson study in the book of Job entitled Praise Him in the Storm When Life Falls Apart. These lessons will run from today, March 13th through June 5th, 2022. Join me first in an opening prayer. We ask, O oh Lord, that you bless this time together as we begin our study in the book of Job. Bless today our understanding of how Job fits into the scripture and correspondingly how our study of Job can fit into our lives as we seek to know you better, as the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. We ask this in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, our own pastor of education and church administration, Dr. Michael Davis, wrote the Bible comments for these lessons, one through four, in our teaching guide published by the GC2 Press for this series of lessons on Job. I very much appreciate the excellent quality of Michael's writing. I compiled most of these background notes that we'll start with today, seven years ago, my task would have been easier if I'd had uh, Michael's writing back then. As you might guess, there's some overlap between my background notes and Michael's writing. Michael points out that the commentators throughout history have identified the book of Job as one of the most remarkable books known to humankind. It's 42 chapters tell the story of God at work in the life of one great man, Job, and Job's response to God's activities. So I'll start with some of the more general information about Job and about Hebrew literature, which Job represents, and borrow freely from Michael toward the end when I get to some of the more specific information about Job, including my comments about today's selected passage of Job 1, 1 through 12. Well, Job is a book that we don't study very often. We seldom hear sermons from it, but there's a great deal in it that can help us draw closer to the Lord, especially in difficult times, as the unit title indicates, when life falls apart. So open your Bibles to Job and let's see where it is in the Old Testament first and how it relates to adjacent books. It's in front of Psalm if you're not accustomed to turning to it, and if you don't have the books of the Bible memorized in their order. It's part of the Old Testament wisdom literature, and let's take a look at some of the features of wisdom literature here. Old Testament wisdom literature includes primarily Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is defined as knowledge of what is good and true. Wisdom, therefore, forms the basis of what is true and false. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. The Greek word for love is philo. Put them together and you have philosophy, the love of wisdom. There are two broad categories of wisdom literature in the Bible. There's proverbial wisdom, 
made up of succinct statements about everyday life and speculative wisdom in which alternatives are proposed and considered and debated. Um, here are two familiar examples of proverbial wisdom in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Here's another one that's probably familiar to you. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, there are many passages in Proverbs that are much longer than two to four lines. So be sure to read from the beginning to the end of each proverb to understand its full meaning. Most modern translations provide spaces between the last line of a proverb and the first line of the next proverb. Well, the other type of wisdom literature, of course, is the speculative. That may not sound very good to you, may not sound very biblical. Um, but speculative wisdom is a type of wisdom commonly used in our secular society as we search for solutions to problems. The word speculative when applied to wisdom does not mean that the wisdom lacks value or casts doubt. Quite the contrary. It simply means that to glean true wisdom from speculative wisdom, we often must be more patient than with the more directly expressed proverbial wisdom. Spiritually and biblically, speculative simply means that various alternatives of interpreting life or interpreting a particular problem are set forth, weighed, and considered. What if it were this way? What if it were that way? What factors influence this way? What factors influence that way? And then try to reach a conclusion or agree that there is no conclusion. Well, this is a very important point because in Job, it means that the dialogues between Job and his friends are not words from God. And that's an important thing for us to have in our understanding as we study the book of Job, God's words in Job come in chapters 38 to 41. In Job, speculative wisdom is in the form of poetic dialogue among various persons seeking to inform each other's opinions on truth and life. Now, Job as a book challenges the commonly accepted assumption that God rewards good people and punishes bad people. That was very strongly held as a view during the time of the Old Testament. It is still rather strongly held as a view today. It comes from Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 6, and so open your Bibles to that because I think an understanding of this passage from Deuteronomy that is the origin of the idea that God rewards good people and punishes bad people is helpful in an understanding as we approach our study to in Job. 
So in Deuteronomy 28, beginning with verse 1, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all of the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now, here are some of the blessings. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Verse 4, the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and your young of your stock, your livestock, and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. They'll all be blessed. Verse 5, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come and blessed when you go out. Then skip down with me to verse 14. Do not turn aside from any of the commands that I give you today. And by the way, the Lord is being quoted here through Moses. Do not turn to the right. Do not turn to the left, following other gods and serving them. And then verse 15, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. They'll all be cursed. You will be cursed when you come and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke and everything that you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land that you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, and scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze and the ground beneath you will be iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. Oh, that sounds really terrible, doesn't it? Well, this idea then turns around in the Old Testament times. And the assumption becomes that good people are blessed by God. That means that they were good. Bad people are punished by God. That means that they're bad. And of course, this continues very strongly into the New Testament. And Jesus comes and presents an entirely different idea. Well, the book of Job is mostly a narrative written in poetic language. 
That's true from Job chapter three to Job 42, six. The prologue, the beginning of Job, Job's, Job chapters one and two are written in prose and the epilogue, Job 42, seven through 17 are also written in prose. Now there are certain features that are helpful to us to understand about narrative, Old Testament narratives, even though in this case, in the book of Job and in other cases too, other parts of the Old Testament, they're written in poetic language. So let's look at some of the features of Old Testament narratives. First of all, they're the characters. There's typically the protagonist, which is the primary person. The narratives are God's stories. And so their stories about God. The primary person, the protagonist, is God. The antagonist is the one who brings conflict in a typical Old Testament narrative. That's Satan or evil powers. And in the book of Job, clearly that is Satan. The agonist, I like to think of it as people who stay in agony or who are in agony in an Old Testament narrative story. The agonists are God's people. Now, the narrator is there in the story all the time. He's everywhere in the story. He knows everything about the story, but he limits what he tells you about the story. And then there are the presentations of the characters. They may be in contrast, such as God, and the adversary in Job, Satan, or they may be parallel, such as Job's four friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. Elihu enters in chapter 32. Look for the descriptions of the characters in the characters' own words, what they say, not so much about what the narrative tells us about them. God describes his own character in chapters 38 through 41, when God enters the scene in Job. One of the characteristics of many of the Old Testament narratives is dialogue, and dialogue is a very prominent part of the book of Job. When we look at dialogue, we should look at the first point of a dialogue because it often gives a clue both to the point being set forth by the speaker, and it often gives a clue about the speaker himself or herself. Look for contrasts in dialogues between two characters. That often readily sets up and defines the conflict or tension in the story or in the dialogue. Often the characters repeat or summarize crucial points of the narrative. So look for these features about the dialogue or in the dialogue in order to understand the narratives. Keep in mind that in Job, the narratives are mostly given in poetry. So this takes us to an interest in Hebrew poetry. First of all, Hebrew poetry addresses the mind through the heart. The poetry is musical. It intends to appeal to the emotions, to stimulate feelings, not propositional thinking, or cognitive understanding. 
It contains many figures of speech and much of the vocabulary in Hebrew poetry is intentionally metaphorical. Be careful to recognize the metaphors and what they signify. Don't take them literally. You'll miss a lot if you take them literally. Let them heighten your enjoyment and appreciation for the ideas that they express. And then there is parallelism. The poetic lines do not rhyme. The poetic lines in ancient Hebrew poetry are structured as parallel couplets or triplets. Many parallel lines are synonymous. That is, the second line repeats and emphasizes the idea of the first line. Some parallel lines are synthetic. That is, the second or the third line gives more information about what is presented in the first line. Some parallel lines are antithetical. That is, the second line is opposite the first line. So these are some patterns to look for. Also, look for patterns of thought within the groups of lines, patterns by which ideas are presented and developed and brought to conclusion. Now, in the New International Version and in most other modern translations, the patterns of thought are set apart by skipping lines among the thoughts, just as in Proverbs. That's very helpful. Remember that poems are easier to recall and easier to memorize than prose. Hebrew poetry was helpful in teaching just as poetry is today. Well, I've given an outline of Job uh, at the end of my notes, and we'll say more about the availability of that outline uh, a little bit later on. Let's now turn to today's lesson to the passage in today's lesson, which is Job 1, 1 through 12. And I wanna tell you right away that I'm taking my comments about that passage, today's lesson, the first lesson in this series of 13 from Michael's writing, which I appreciate very much. The title of lesson one is Living by Genuine Faith. So turn in your Bibles if you haven't already done it, to Job 1, and remember, as I said a while ago, if you have trouble finding Job, it's right in front of Psalm. And let's start with verse 1 of Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all of the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed in their heart, cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
one day the angels came or the sons of God is another way of translating that. One day the angels or sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. But then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. But the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and presumably continued to go from place to place as he roamed through the earth. Well, let's think about that passage of scripture and just what it means. And let's look a little bit about what Michael tells us in his comments in the teacher's guide. First of all, blameless, the fact that Job was blameless means genuine and authentic. A man of integrity who kept his word and who treated other people well, that did not mean that he was sinless, but he was genuine and authentic. He shunned evil. He had turned away from evil. He was richly blessed with a complete family symbolized in the number of seven. Seven sons that when combined with three daughters was an ideal family. You see there's symbolism in those numbers of seven and 10. He was wealthy beyond comprehension. I have no idea how in the world he could have kept up with all of his wealth. The greatest of all people, the narrator tells us, of the East, he was not a wandering nomad. He had land. He and his sons had houses. Even though he probably was not a Hebrew, he had some knowledge of God and he acted accordingly. Even to the extent of holding purifying rituals for his children after periods of feasting, just in case any of the children had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That's remarkable. In verse 6, we are introduced to angels or the sons of God about whom Job had no knowledge. Satan is with them. His name, Satan, means adversary. His role seems to be to roam the earth, presumably looking for trouble, someone on whom to lay blame. The Lord asks Satan if he has considered or set his heart upon Job. 
But Satan accuses God of protecting Job, placing Job out of Satan's reach. No wonder Job was so diverted, devoted to God. And we know today, of course, that if we let him, God will protect us. If we let him, God will set him, will set us out of reach of Satan. That's one of the choices that we have, one of the mysterious choices that we have in our faith in God. Well, Michael goes on to point out that this is a clear description of the prosperity gospel of our day. I agree with Michael on that. Satan says Job holds God in awe and reveres him because God has given him a wonderful family and great wealth. Not because God is God and is worthy of our praise. The prosperity gospel seems to go back to that old passage in Deuteronomy that I quoted from and read to you earlier, that if you're good, you'll be blessed by God. And sometime the TV evangelist will go so far as to say, if you send me a thousand dollars, here are the number of blessings that you will receive. Well, let's go on with Job. So Satan challenges God to take away everything Job has. And then Job's praise will change to cursing, Satan thinks. So Satan challenges God in that way. And the Lord agrees with Satan's wager, but forbids Satan to harm Job's life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan's work cannot be done in the glorious presence of the Lord. There's one other aspect about the wisdom literature. Let me turn to that just briefly for you, if I can find it here in my notes. Um, there are some things that the wisdom literature tells us, and there are some things that the wisdom literature does not tell us. Um, Bear with me here just a moment, because I think these things can be very helpful, applicable here in our first lesson today. We need to keep in mind in studying Job that while Job raises many difficult questions, the book of Job also gives some answers. One important answer is that wisdom is ultimately found in God alone. Human wisdom cannot on its own fathom the ways of God. So we don't understand why God would have given Job, excuse me, given Satan control over Job. Undeserved suffering has no easy answer, but Job teaches us how to suffer well. God is not obligated to explain all of the things to fallen human beings, and we need to accept that as we approach this study of Job. The fear of the Lord, awe and reverence of the Lord, and a desire not to offend God, that's the definition of the fear of the Lord, is the path to true wisdom. 
God is sufficient in times of distress. God can be trusted in every circumstance of life. Now, there are a few things that we don't know about Job and about the book of Job. We don't really know who the historical character of Job was. We don't really know who wrote Job. The author is anonymous. We don't really know when it was written, but it takes place during the period of Abraham or shortly thereafter during the period of the patriarchs, probably around 2000 BC. So it is a very old part of our Bibles. The meaning of Job's name, we don't really know, but some scholars say that it can be translated to mean object of enmity or the assailed. Uz is mentioned, but we really don't know the exact location of Uz. Now, Michael points out a very interesting thing, I think, uh, about Job. The fact that it, it takes place in a very early date is probably um, of value, and it probably increases the book's value because Hebrew history had not taken place by that time and the issues of Hebrew history are not included. Well, for centuries, the book of Job has been used as a resource for dealing with suffering. The big question has been and continues to be, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, um, let me mention to you uh, that if you would like to have a copy of my notes that, of what I've shared with you today, um, just uh, send me an email or um, contact me by telephone, and I'll be glad to share these notes with you. And... Um, I'm hoping here that I can bring up the screen to give you my phone number. Uh, let's go back and try that again. Now, there we are. And also my email address. Now, also some of you may not be involved in Sunscoop, may not be part of a Sunscoop class. Um, Koinonia class has a blended class each Sunday. Some of us meet in person in classroom A105. We'd be glad to have you join us there. But if you prefer to join us by Zoom, we simultaneously host a Zoom meeting that's done in our classroom at the time that we're meeting face-to-face. -face. And if you would like to join us by Zoom, we'd be glad to have you. Just send me an email at that email address, and we'll be glad to send you an invitation to join us in class. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this session today, and I hope you're as excited as I am as we approach this study of Job. Let's have a closing prayer. Lord, help us to carry what we've learned today through the next 12 lessons from Job. Most importantly, we ask again that you guide us through these studies to heighten our awareness of your love 
and your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.